Welcome to the Everyday Musician Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Use my code E-M-R-U-G-A-L-A and get $25 off your first order with Hotel Tonight. Download the app, use my code, and be happy with your stay. Welcome to the Everyday Musician Podcast, hosted by Eric Mergala, a podcast where he has conversations with everyday musicians doing amazing things. Here's your host, Eric. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Everyday Musician Podcast. I'm delighted to have Joseph Harkins on the line, and he will be relocating to Baltimore, Maryland. Joseph, good to have you on the podcast this week. Great to be with you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. And uh, we met last summer, and I just want to, but before we get into those details, just tell the audience who you are, where you're from, and what you're going to be doing in Baltimore. Absolutely. Um, Well, I'm Joseph Foster Harkins. Um, I use the middle name because there's a link to the composer Stephen Collins Foster, who's a third or fourth generation member of my family. Uh, He was the guy that wrote Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races. Uh, Pretty cool dude. Look him up. Um, Anyway, so I'm Joseph. I'm from Middletown in central Pennsylvania. It's just south of Harrisburg. And um, like you said, I'll soon be based in Baltimore and beginning uh, doctoral studies at the Peabody Institute uh, starting in August, which I'm really excited to say to get down there and get to work. Excellent. Have you lived in Pennsylvania for most of your life? Absolutely. Born and raised in Pennsylvania. And really, Pennsylvania is a but the whole culture of Pennsylvania is really a part of my identity as well. Um, it, it, the, geog- the geography is incredibly diverse in the state, um, much like my work tends to be stylistically diverse. I think that's part because um, growing up in central Pennsylvania, a half hour drive can take you to, to any kind of um, any kind of place that you would want to go to. You can be in the middle of a city, you can be in the middle of a cornfield, you can be in the middle of the mountains. The, the opportunity to go anywhere you want to go is is really quite exciting and part of why I love living here. Um, I grew up in Harrisburg basically all my life. Uh, lived for lived in Cincinnati for two years uh, while pursuing my master's and and now living in Pennsylvania again until I moved down to Baltimore. Great. So I don't even know if I know this, but what instrument do you play? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, I'm an oboist. I started out playing oboe in the fourth grade, much to my teacher's chagrin. Uh, I was a pretty bad instrumentalist for a, a number of years, to the point where my second year of study, the instrument was taken away from me, and I was given a pair of drumsticks and a rhythm etude book. Oh, no. Me. So I'm curious to know about that story. <laughs> basically, basically, my tone was so awful that the overall goal was we're going to improve every other facet of your musicianship and ignore your oboe playing. And then we'll let the sixth grade teacher handle your performance. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so actually, I can see how that smart idea. I can see how you are a composer then. So you, instead of a performer, you much, uh, you might, you would much rather compose. Tell us about that transition from being a performer into being a composer. Um, was that kind of like a like a spare the moment kind of thing where like, okay, I want to try composition or it, was that something that you kind of been thinking about and you wanted to, you know, get your feet wet and then try, try pursuing it? Any, any facet of my musicality 
all comes from my um, experience as a performer and as an oboist. I actually have a bachelor's degree in oboe performance. Um, I got a composition and performance dual degree and really pursued performance up until my third, fourth year of high school. Um, I did gigs in L.A. and Boston and Providence. I did a two-week tour in Europe. Um, I appear on two recordings through Mark Records. I mean, I had a, a decent performance career. and It was getting better. Um, the, the problem with oboe playing is there's this intense reed-making situation that my Goliath-sized hands just couldn't possibly understand. And so I had to drop the reed-making at some point. It just wasn't giving me any joy whatsoever. Um, and I found that I was spending more time writing than I was practicing. As much as I enjoyed performing, I didn't enjoy the practicing aspect of it. And that's really essential for any solid performance career. But I will say that my performing uh, has a huge role in my composition and the way I conceive pieces and the way I think about music. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but really a, a good performer will write excellent music. And it doesn't always work um, the other way around. So I really looked at my performance uh, very, very critically. Excellent. So let's talk about briefly about the, the process of making reads, because you are the first woodwind player, or at least I think you are the first woodwind player that I can remember that is on the podcast, that's on the Everyday Musician podcast. So for, for a person who has no idea what read making is and are coming across this podcast, they have no idea what yeah so so these little wooden um they, they're made of bamboo right and then you can uh, attach it to your oboe and that's how you make a sound from the oboe right that's how you blow in, that's how you get air inside the oboe and that's how you um, produce a sound so talk about the actual reed making process and why it's really difficult to do well so it's not so much bamboo. Um, oboe reeds start from cane. Cane, cane excuse cane. me. Yes, I knew it was some kind of. I knew it was some kind of wood. Yeah, my apologies. Yeah. No, sure, no problem. Uh, this cane can come from anywhere in the world. Um, I've worked with cane from Spain. You know, Spain cane, as we called it. Um, cane from Argentina. Cane from all over Asia, from China. Um, and, you know, it can be of varying quality. It really depends on the season. It depends on who's growing it, how long they've been growing it. There's all kinds of factors at play. But you start with this cane and it comes in a thick tube, kind of like a stalk of bamboo in that sense. But it's not nearly as tall. It's not nearly as big. And what you do is you soak that cane, split it into three equal parts, and then essentially whittle down all of that cane into a, a thin um, thin sort of strip of cane, which is then folded over and shaped into um, into the proper form that you would see most oboists play on, and then you open it up. Oboes and bassoons are double reed instruments, and that double reed comes from taking that strip of cane, folding it over and shaping it into the proper form, and then cutting it open with a pair of scissors or a razor blade or whatever instrument you can, you, you can best use. But that opening basically breaks the reed in two, and you tie those two pieces together at the bottom, leaving the opening uh, at, at the top, and that creates your double reed situation. 
And this creates something that is unbelievably fragile. If that if that tie isn't solid, if it isn't well constructed, it might slowly slip over the course of a couple of days or a week or two and ruin the quality of the read. Once that opening is made, and you can tear the whittling cane away until you have a thin enough um, thin enough strip to vibrate, you can very easily accidentally make the wrong move. And the read is gone. All that work is for nothing. About 75% of all the reads I've ever made went straight in the trash can. And that's, you know, it's one of those positivity things where you have to say, okay, this is expected. Move on to the next one. And the unfortunate reality for Oboists is that most of our reads only last for, uh, at least in their prime, or only last for about a week or two, maybe three or four weeks if they're kept under very, very solid conditions. But it's a, it's a very torturous process, and anything can go wrong at any step down the line. And it requires a lot of just sort of bullheadedness to just keep going forward and hope it works out. <laughs> Yeah, and that's one of the difficult things about being an oboe player in general. I mean, I know many of my oboe colleagues experience the same thing. They're like in a room just making reads for half the day and then seeing which ones work. And then a lot of them they actually throw in the trash, which is really crazy. It's like me as a violinist, me trying to buy or me making a string, putting on my violin and being like, oh, nope, the string is bad and just having to redo another one. And I think... um, from what I gather from my oboe colleagues, they make like maybe four uh, four reads a day. Like they try to walk out of the room like with good three or four reads. Well, and that includes all of the prep work that goes into it. The, the shaping of the cane, cutting down, whittling the tubes of cane and tying and doing all these other things. Those three and four reads take hours and hours of work beforehand. It's a lot of time. I was making reads probably about four or five hours a day. And that was before even getting to the practicing. And remember that practicing requires reads that work. And the longevity of those reads are slowly being diminished as you practice, along with the performing itself. And so you you can really enter this mindset, which I entered, which is what led me to getting away from full-time performance, where when you practice you have to go do more read making because you're slowly whittling away the longevity of your current reads. It's incredibly frustrating some days and it led me to just not wanting to practice. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I can, I can imagine that. Do you actually write, do you tend to find that you write a lot more woodwind music than string or instrument, um, other instrumental music because of your woodwind background? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many lackluster contemporary works I played on oboe or played throughout the course of my performance career just because there aren't enough contemporary pieces out there that are good models. Really, in terms of unaccompanied works that the college musician might come into contact with, you have the the amateur pieces that you might find in a Barra Etude book, which we called it, or the Vatimikum, just the oboe Bible. Um, Those unaccompanied pieces there are mostly sort of etudes. They're they're meant for practice and for study, and they're not terribly well-suited for concert performance. Or you might have extremely amateur pieces that are designed for students to have something to play at their studio recital when they're in middle school that aren't terribly difficult, but then also aren't terribly interesting. 
And then you have the other side, which is unbelievably virtuosic music that even the best oboe players have trouble um, comprehending, and audiences have even less trouble comprehending because the performers can't get their heads around it. And there's, I think this goes for many, many instruments out there, but it's especially true in the wind world, where you have either incredibly virtuosic or incredibly uninteresting unaccompanied pieces or solo pieces, or even chamber works too. And there's not a lot of middle ground there. There's not a lot of musically rich works that are technically approachable. And part of my whole shtick as a composer is providing works that are approachable technically that aren't completely out in left field but are so musically rich and inviting and dense as to allow for repeated listening repeated practice and repeated rehearsal and yield um, much fruit and much reward upon deeper listening while still being approachable by you know the average musician yeah you touch on a many many good things and one question that i would like to ask you is do you tend to compose music uh for the musician or for the audience because for a violinist uh let's talk about the box uh sonatas and partitas for solo violin um one can argue that those sonatas are for the musician actually playing it instead of for the audience so do you tend to write with the audience in mind or with the musician in mind or both because i know it's i know it's difficult to do is to accomplish both right well, this is a really great question, and this really gets into why I do what I do. Um, the short answer is both, but the actual more correct answer is for the performer. And I think of it in this way. A composer in the classical tradition, we're basically dictating what we want to hear in a certain temporal way onto a piece of paper. And we have a notation system that allows this. And that is either flexible or very unflexible, depending on how you write and what you want to express. And so a lot of the 20th century um, music that was being written was not just experimental in a acoustic way, but it was also how can we stretch notation to properly express what it is that we want to hear. And what I attempt to do with my own work is, since I understand that I am basically dictating to a performer, this is what I want to hear at a certain time, in a certain manner, with this certain connotation, right? Include all of that information, but to a certain degree, I can only express as much as I can express with a word. And we're talking about music, which doesn't have verbal communication so much outside of lyrics or songwriting. And so, to me, the most important relationship that can be fostered in music making is the relationship between composer and performer. Because the performer basically translates the composer's words and intents through the music and thus a performer creates a relationship to the audience through that realization there's also the important thing to consider that musicians the performers they also have personalities they also have things that they wish to express and lots of, of emotion and you know heartfelt messages that they want to bring to their own audiences as well as a composer and so it's important as from a compositional standpoint to understand that you're not only facilitating your own communication, but you're facilitating the communication of every performer on stage that's performing what you have told them to do. And so to me, if you want to connect to an audience, connect to the performer because the performer will want to connect to the audience. 
it's kind of like trying to hook up internet in your home through your computer. Well, you need to plug in the modem and turn it on first. And I wish I could say this wasn't from experience, but you have to make sure that the modem is plugged into the wall to make sure you have an internet connection before you get angry and call the company about 10,000 times. <laughs> oh, we've all, we've, everybody listening, we've all had that experience for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And composition is much the same way. If you're writing music that is intentionally not communicating with the performer and for whatever reason, you're not going to have much of a prayer in connecting to the audience because the performer can't connect to what you're trying to say. It's facilitating communication between composer and performer, which then facilitates communication between performer and audience. Yeah, you... everybody, everybody has a chance to express what they want to express. Everybody's happy. You bring up many, many interesting topics. I love it. So how does that conversation start with the performer? Because you talk about this really um, strong bond between the composer and the performer instead of straight uh, to the audience. How does that conversation start when somebody approaches you for a commission or when you have an idea and you approach a performer, vice versa, right? So how do you approach that process? How does the conversation look like? Talk to me about that process. Right. I think... It really depends on the situation and depends on the performer and depends on what's happening in your respective lives. So there are situations where composers will need to write something quickly for, for, you know, for let's say there's an event that occurred last minute. It's in two months and this performer was invited to do something. And for some reason or another, there's money for a commission and part of that. Well, I have two weeks to write this thing, um, three minutes total, and basically you want to get something in there and sound good and make the event special. That in and of itself is a difficult situation because you have to turn out something very quickly. Um, and so the process can either be lengthened or shortened to, to match that. But in a, in a normal circumstance where you have the proper time to develop an idea, develop a piece, what have you, what I like to do is get get rid of the small talk and ask you know ask performers what are they what are they doing what are they going through what do they want to express what do they like, what purpose is this serving right because there are you know there are plenty of just school recitals right um, senior recitals grad recitals what have you uh, symphony orchestra concerts happen all the time too and what's the point. What are we trying to get at? Is there a message that's being brought to the community? Is there a message that the musician wants to express? Right? There may have been um, there may have been a death in the family for a performer, and so they're looking for a piece to to remember this person's life by. And that's something really important for me to consider if they're investing their time and resources into my expertise. How can I serve their overall message? Right? And that's basically the essence of it is communicating desires and current life happenings to whoever you're working with at the time, right? Uh, my emotions can go anywhere from extreme joy to extreme sadness to extreme anger in a manner of about five minutes. And so my music tends to reflect that as well. And that's something I bring forth to the table right away. As I say, if you want to work with me, understand that my music is going to be very severe in its emotion. It's going to be very direct in what it wants to say. And so if you want me to express a certain emotion at a certain time, you need to tell me so I can prepare for that. Right. It's just like, just like the conversation before about 
facilitating communication between composer and performer, start that at the very beginning. What are we trying to say? What purpose is this serving? Is this a concert of you know all works for solo violin that focus on you know focus on the natural world? Well, that's my wheelhouse. I can really provide something there. Um, I've also done work um, with a very dear friend, Armida Rivera, who's a Bach uh, Bach artist on trumpet, hmm, okay. and she and she stretched me to conceive works that come from a a very sort of late 20th century aesthetic that's focused on extended technique. And I've never been a fan of music that's all about, here's what I can do for the sake of doing it. And I'm not communicating a message. I'm just showing off my virtuosity. I've never been a fan of that. But when engaged with this idea of how can we use extended techniques and all of these extended musical effects to create some kind of message, that forced me to rethink my compositional process in a really interesting way. The, the result of that was a work called Taking Command. Um, I think the score is going to be on my website soon. And basically what happens is the beginning of the piece is tonal. It's very melodic. It's almost romantic in a sense. Very traditional music. And over the course of five, six minutes, by the end of the piece, the performer is stomping on the ground, yelling at audience members, um, key clicking voraciously on the instrument, yelling mm. at the instrument, doing all kinds of weird things. And okay. it's about you know this about this dehumanization that occurs in Joseph Heller's Something Happened. Fantastic book if you haven't read it. Interesting. Um, but- That's, this is all interesting. I want to touch on a little bit of everything that you just said, just to recap. Please, so, please um, do. Uh, just for the audience, this is a this is a short little story. But um, and Joseph, you, I, I don't think I've ever told you this either. But there, um, I took a class in grad school called Schenkerian Analysis, is um, by Anton Schenker. It's this uh, way of music theory and how we analyze music um, in music theory, right? Just just the basis of oh, what it is, a, right? So it's yeah, interesting stuff. Or... It's it's very interesting, and it's uh, you you deal with visual scores. And I had a professor. Uh, who at the beginning of the class, um, at the beginning of the semester, he was like, when you submit your work, I don't want to get potato chips. I want a kale salad. And it sounds like that's what you want. You want your music to have a lot of kale in it as opposed to um, a lot of kind of savory um, snacks and, you know, all that stuff. Not necessarily. I mean, there's a there's a there's a time and place for that, right? But I th- it sounds like you really want to get to um, your really uh, message oriented, and you you incorporate your own personality and your own emotion to what the performer might want. So that's all very interesting, and that kind of ties into what I want to talk to you about um, your philosophies when you're approaching your composition. Do you? have any inspiration like any books that you read or any or anything that you do outside of music for that matter that inspires you to write the music i can i can absolutely absolutely elaborate on that but i wanted just to mention um i'm completely in the pursuit of quality and whether that quality is in a scrumptious kale salad which i will never eat because i deplore (laughs) salad um you should try you should try a good kale salad sometime joseph it's delicious (laughs) 
It's magnifique. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, cur- I'm currently on the South Beach diet right now, which means no carbs, no sugar, and I'm going crazy because here I am eating, you know, here I am eating beef and, you know, caramelized onions and peppers. It's delicious. But my first thought is, you know, where's the roll? I'm missing the roll. It's <laughs> right. crazy. Yeah, um, but, absolutely. But really, really, I'm in pursuit of quality first and foremost. And that can be kale, that can be broccoli, and that can also be potato chips. Well-made potato chips, I will eat the entire bag and then go back for seconds. And I think there's absolutely a place for that musically as well. It goes from project to project. You know, some pieces are very light, some pieces are very dark and serious. It's just a matter of what material I have and what I have to say in a given moment. But whatever it is that you do... Make sure you say it in a way that's cohesive, that has a very clear message so that your audience can understand what your intent is. If your audience can't understand your intent, they're not going to understand what your message is in any way, shape, or form. And so if you want to offer a kale salad, make sure you tell a person, hey, here's a kale salad. And if you don't like it, then maybe we can offer something else. <laughs> Interesting. If okay. Up, if someone came up to me and said, hey, here's a kale salad, I'll tell them to go send it back and give me quite literally anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting that you mentioned all of that. So I just want to touch on the question that I asked earlier. What are some of the topics that you like to explore outside of music? Or what are some Absolutely. of your hobbies outside of music that help inspire you to write your music? That's a great question. Um, there are three things that I, I can think of um, right away. The the first is tennis. I'm a very avid tennis player. I've been playing as I've been playing tennis as long as I've been playing oboe um, since fourth grade. Tennis is very important in my family. Uh, multiple generations have played um, back to you know to the original Fosters. They were all tennis players as well. Um, I played for. I played for my varsity team in high school. I was captain for two years. Um, my senior year, I led our team to our first winning season in eight years, which was really exciting. Wow, good for you. Um, I continued playing tennis in a limited fashion through college, focusing on my music career, so I wasn't able to play as much as I would have liked. But starting my master's degree, um, I met a dude named Austin Motley. He's a fantastic trombonist. And he was um, a much better player than I was, much to my frustration. And <laughs> and he he transformed my game in the span of about a year and a half, um, completely reconstructed my serve. So now it's a much more powerful weapon, um, completely changed the way I hit forehands and backhands and think about, you know, the construction of points. Right. How can you um, how can you manipulate the other player to do what you want them to do so you can take control of the point? And tennis has taught me in so many ways, you know, about architecture and about how the brain works. Right. In order to be a good tennis player, you have to be strong mentally. You have to be able to give yourself positive messages, even when you're down, you know, 20 games or whatever it is. It's a game where just like golf, where you're it you're the only person that's doing things good or bad. And so you have to learn how to support yourself in times of negativity, how to continue positive directions when you're winning a couple games or even a set or two. And as terrible as I am with that, you can ask my father, I have an unbelievably bad temper when I'm playing tennis poorly. It taught me just how little strength I had over my own mental um, mental state when I was stressed, when I was in a situation that was beyond my control or a situation that was in my control that I wasn't doing enough to um, enough to keep on the positive in a positive way. 
Um, so. I can definitely relate to a lot of what you just said. Um, you know, in high school, I also was an athlete. I did track and field. I was a jumper, um, mostly high jump and long jump, and then occasionally triple jump. But uh, oh. I can, yeah, so I, I can relate to you in terms of how sport can help give you structure in the sense right. on how you train your body to compete at the highest level as performers train their bodies and practice to their highest level. And there, there's, there's, some, there's something to be said about how both um, an actual sport like uh, track and field or, um, or tennis can have the same effect on like how you organize your time when you're performing an instrument or when you're composing. I think there right. is something to be said about that. Right. Um, so that, that's a, that's a very important, uh, part of my life. Um, hiking being in the natural world is also a massive influence. Um, a lot of my work, especially over the past two years is very much grounded in the natural world and specifically in mountainous areas and specific mountains. Um, I've written a lot of pieces over the past two years about, uh, about Cove mountain and Duncan in Pennsylvania that I often run away to just to, um, just to be up there and watch the Susquehanna River flow south. Um, I wrote a piece about Kentucky's Red River Gorge, which is a place I went to when I was living in Cincinnati and was farther away from the Appalachians than I would have liked. My master's thesis was about Cumberland Gap on the border between Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. Um, and so I spend a lot, as much time as I can hiking, being out in the world um, and being out in you know, and this incredible beauty that just sort of exists that I think we so easily take for granted. Um, mountains, to me in particular, just have such a strong spirituality that I can feel inside internally as I, you know, drive through them or hike through them or sit and overlook and kind of look out on the world. You know, you, you feel insignificant in the most in incredibly positive way. And it's not a feeling I'm used to, you know, feeling insignificant with such positivity attached to it. It's a, it's a feeling that I really try to capture in my work and in my, in my musicality. Um, so that's important. And I have to, of course, bow down to television because it takes so much of my time, <laughs> whether I want to admit it or not. Um, but I have deep respect for, for shows like Breaking Bad, BoJack Horseman, The Sopranos, which I'm currently watching. I mean, the, the way that these shows are written is unbelievably concise, unbelievably direct. And really, there's so much that we can learn from well-written television, just as much as you can learn from a film or from another piece of music. It's just fantastic art. Watching people perform at the highest level is just so inspiring. Um, and that's a great lead-on to my favorite show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Of course, I watched, yeah. I was just going to say, times, I was yeah. just going <laughs> to say, you're, you live in Pennsylvania. Like, you have to have watched that show if you're in Pennsylvania. My buddy in undergrad and I must have watched that show about 50 times through over the course of two years while living together. Um, I, I used to put it on in the background while it was still on Netflix. Uh, it's not anymore, which is a really, really sad day. Um, but when I was, for example, doing the parts to my first symphony, I put on the first uh, first episode, first season of, of Always Sunny, sat down and start the parts. And by the time I was done, I was halfway through season 10. <laughs> you know, there's a very similar... Con uh, that, that reminds me just very quickly, and then we're going to have to um, wrap it up. I have another big main question that I want to ask you. But just to, um, just to add on to what you just said, John Adams wrote his Chamber Symphony uh, as an inspiration of his kid watching uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes. 
You know, That's one amazing. of his, yeah, one of his movements called Roadrunner. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I know because I played it and violinists out there, beware because it is a difficult part. So practice. I've, I've, got, a, I've, I've got a younger cousin um, and he's, I think he's about to start high school and he has no idea who Bugs Bunny is. And my brain short circuited. I'm like, how can you not know who Bugs Bunny is? Well, it just shows how old we really are. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I guess so. I don't know if I'm ready to consider myself old yet, but I guess we're going to do it here. <laughs> Joseph, one, uh, la- one last question for you. For the person who is not a musician, who's listening to this podcast, give them a reason why they should attend a new music concert. I know I've had many conversations with people who are non-musicians who feel like um, it's too fancy or they get intimidated by atonality or they don't want to walk into a performance not knowing what the music is about. What can you tell this audience member to really take a risk or a leap of faith and to try something new and to listen to a piece of new music? Right. And specifically um, new classical music. This is the most essential question to our art form at the moment, to the, to the classical establishment, as it were. What, what happens that we lost our audience, per se, and how do we get it back? There's so much research done on this question. There's so many scholarly articles written that try to explain using scientific methods how classical music became um, irreverent to um, to audiences. And that's partly why I'm so interested in rock music in the 60s and 70s, because that, to me, kind of shows the way forward um, for ourselves. And uh, I'll get to my answer to your question through this little, little aside. Um, so consider bands like Yes, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, Genesis, um, the players that were involved in these groups in the late 60s, they were all classically trained. Um, Keith Emerson, I believe, attended the Royal College of Music. Uh, Rick Wakeman, I believe, has a bachelor's degree in piano performance as well. And all of these guys could have been um, stellar classical musicians in their own right. But while they were in school, there was something that took them away from the classical establishment and led them to other like-minded people to enter this then fledgling form of rock and roll. This was in the 1960s and this was when, you know, serialism was at its height, right? When, you know, this very unaccessible uh, concert music was being written that I certainly don't listen to anymore or try to avoid if I can. Um, but these musicians, you know, look to people like the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and say, there's a way forward here. There's something that we can offer um, to to the musical world that, you know, it could be more interesting. And so they took to vinyl records. They had 22 minutes on each side of a vinyl record and said, we're going to write a piece that's as long as the side of a record and just see what we can do with it. And, you know, some results are better than others. So you can, you know, you can criticize that all you want. But some of the results were just absolutely mesmerizing. And they took the studio and transformed it into an instrument. Looking at you, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds. Um, some groups like Emerson, Lincoln Palmer with uh, brain sound surgery in 1973 even went aside and a, a third um, with one piece as a 33 minute long epic carnival nine and took up the whole second side plus another eight minutes on the first side of the disc. Um, and you know, that to me is incredible that they were classically trained and decided to enter, you know, quote unquote, the popular vein of music making. And I look at that and look at our current, 
our current world and how many concert goers complain that they can't relate to the music that's being made on stage. Part of that comes from education. Classical education isn't nearly as strong as it used to be or isn't necessarily as focused. Um, I can't speak for every school district out, out, out in the country. That, that'd be just ridiculous of me to think of. But there definitely is less of a sense of expectation from the audience goers in terms of what they can listen to, some sort of approach that they can take to a classical concert. And I think of it this way. If classically trained musicians escape the classical world to make music somewhere else, then we can take that and rebridge the gap, as I call it, and go back to the other side and create a dialogue between the two camps. It's ridiculous to think that we can convert popular music listeners. That's not the point. The music itself is serving different aims and different ends, right? I love entertainment, just like every other human being does. And that music has its place. And art music, I love that. The music of Michael Colgrass really sends me on this, this huge mind trip for about a week or two weeks after I listen to a new piece of his. And that has its place too. And I think part of what we can create with our audience members is facilitate the communication where you're coming to a concert and with this concert, we're communicating via sound, right? Just like a composer facilitates communication with the performer, facilitates communication with the performer or with an audience, excuse me. Right, yeah. We can make that expectation known that this is what we're ultimately trying to do. We're communicating our emotions, our life view through this music that happens to be a little bit different from what you hear on the radio or what you might have heard over the course of your life. And when you frame it as this new experience that can open up a new avenue towards self-expression, that gets people interested, right? When they can listen to a piece of music and say, this person was in a really dark place, they can feel that energy and relate to it. Right. Instead of just being told, you have to appreciate this because of the following academic techniques that we use to build it. I love craft and technique in my work. It's a very important facet of what I do. All of my work is meticulously crafted and there's a lot of technical aspects to it. But that's not the primary focus. Concert goers are listening to your piece for the first time almost always if you're a contemporary composer. So don't expect that you're, that someone's revisiting this work in a live setting. You, you can almost expect the opposite more of the time. And so you have, as a composer, your job then is to understand if they're listening to this for the first time, they have to understand that message. And if they can understand the message and relate to it or at least understand that this person was really happy at this moment or really serious at this moment, they can walk away from that feeling that emotion. That's music's power is portraying emotion to another person without having to say a word. And when we focus on that relationship, we have something really special that we can offer. And that's the key. We can offer new emotion new communication don't worry about the sound don't worry about the technical things don't worry about the program notes or someone's going to read anyway listen to what's being done look at the performer and the emotion on their face and respond to it and feel it and think about a time when you have done the same thing and when more people can do that and when that general sense of communication is shared with the rest of you know, the rest of a community, the rest of a city, 
the rest of the country, you know, as Arlo Guthrie said in Alice's restaurant, you know, we might have a movement with 50 people do it, but if we can get to 500, then we've created an institution and that's the ultimate goal. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Joseph, thanks so much for coming on to this week's podcast. I really, really appreciate the conversation. I, I hope you had as much fun as I did. And um, the for people who want to learn more about you, how can people get a hold of you or learn more about your music? Absolutely. Um, my website, simply www.josephfosterparkins.com. Simple Google search should find it. Um, all, my, all my works are on there, including scores, recordings, um, a bunch of pictures of me, good and bad, are on my website. <laughs> so you get a sense of what I look like. Um, but everything that I have is on my website, um, all my pieces, all recordings. And I try to keep my bio updated and keep performances, events updated on there as well. Um, I'm on Facebook. I exist in the world. Feel free to communicate with me. I love chatting with people uh, as much as I can about real ideas. Um, so that's that's where I'm at. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to put all of that in the podcast description, in the podcast notes. And um On the website, I I assume that you have upcoming events, so people check out the upcoming events. And Joseph, we hope to talk to you in the future episode of the Everyday Musician Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Everyday Musician Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Make sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook. I'm going to provide links in the podcast description so it'll be easy for you to like and follow us on those social media platforms. I'm your host, Eric Mogala. Join me next week on another episode of The Everyday Musician.